And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down deep into him. Let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. And you will overflow with thankfulness. Hello, everybody. Am I doing all right? Let, let me just ask you this. Is it warm enough for you outside this weekend? I'm telling you what, a few weeks ago, you know, we were all kind of complaining, hey, you know, it's a, where's the summer and all the rain? Summer is here. Would you agree with that? I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now from an off-site campus uh, or on the Internet, wherever you happen to be. We really are uh, glad that you guys are along with us. Uh, let me start with a question I almost always do. How many of you would say that naturally, your natural inclination is to be a rule keeper? How many of you would say, I like rules, I like to know where the boundaries are, all of that? How many of you would, go ahead, come on, put your hands up, it's okay, it's all right. Okay, you're a little strange, but it's all right, it's okay, it's good. Not really, that's how God wired you up. All right, how many of you would say, you know, that's not me, in fact, um, I, I feel a little uh, claustrophobic when there are too many rules. How many of you, that's kind of you? Okay. All right. So we're kind of mixed up in that. Well, you know what? Rules are good. Rules are, are good. Um, they're well-meaning. In fact, we live uh, in a country of rules. That is a good thing. But uh, I, I discovered some state laws that some of them are still on the books, and they're a little bit old, uh, to say the least. Let, let me give you a couple of them. In the state of Colorado, where I grew up in, there is a law that states that a man cannot marry his wife's grandmother. <laughs> I'd say that's a good law. I mean, that's, that's probably, probably wise. <laughs> I thought that was a lot funnier than you guys did. Obviously, uh, in the state of Utah, first cousins may marry, but only after they're 65 years old, okay? All right, that's probably pretty good. In the state of Kentucky, it's against the law to remarry the same man four times. <laughs> Duh, yeah, I'd say, you know, three probably is kind of, yeah, okay, all right. How about this? <laughs> I think this one's been repealed. Uh, it's a, at one point, it was against... Uh, the law in Michigan to tie a crocodile to a fire hydrant. I'm just thinking, when did that happen, you know? How many crocodiles are there, you know, in, in Michigan? I, I don't know. Uh, in Wilbur, Washington, it's illegal to ride an ugly horse. I thought that was interesting. One more. Uh, policemen uh, in Paulding, Ohio, policemen are allowed to bite a dog if they think it will calm the dog down. Okay, so, good law. So laws are good. We're a nation of laws. I'm glad that we are. Uh, but uh, for it to work, uh, you've got to clean up the law books uh, every once in a while. And the truth is this. Churches all across our land are littered with outdated rules and expectations that can squeeze the life out of our relationship with God. We're in a series right now 
and uh, we're calling it Deeper. It's a verse-by-verse um, -verse study uh, through the book of Colossians. Last week, we studied Colossians chapter 1, uh, where uh, he, he says, you know what? It was a joy, Paul, who wrote it, said it was a joy and privilege to pray for Christians from a town called Colossae because of their faith and their hope and their love. And we talked about that and how we can apply that to our lives. This week, he kind of has some warnings because uh, there's some things going on in the Colossae church that, uh, that their rules uh, that uh, they can squeeze the life out of the believers there if, if they submit to them and if they kind of go down a, a path. And so uh, he says in Coloss, Colossians 2 and verse 7, which is kind of the, the, the cornerstone verse of the whole book, he says, keep your roots deep in him. Circle the word roots, would you? Do you have an outline sheet? Circle the word roots. Keep your roots. This is how you avoid uh, theological error. Keep your roots deep in him. Now, what, when you're thinking about roots, what's the biggest threat to roots? You know, if you're planting a garden, all right, you've got some plants out there, maybe you've got a few tomatoes, got some peppers, what have you. What is a major threat, one of the first major threats to roots? It's weeds, right? Because weeds, how many of you have ever grown a nice weed garden? Anybody else besides me? Ever, you know, you start out, you're going to grow a nice garden, and ultimately it ends up weeds because it doesn't take any effort whatsoever to grow weeds. I looked weeds up this week, found out some things about weeds. They're plants with no redeeming value. They have no food value. They have no nutritional value. They have no medicinal value value. Uh, they also have accelerated growth patterns. Since they're worthless, they grow quickly. And not only do they grow quickly, but usually they spread their seeds so they replicate all over the place. Sometimes uh, they're poisonous. Sometimes they have thorns. But the major thing is that they compete with plants for nutrients, for space, for the things that are important. They attract insects. They're just miserable. And here's the truth. Root systems of growth spiritually can be stunted or even choked to death by weeds called legalism. And that's what Paul warns against in chapter 2. In fact, it's the reason he wrote the book. He says, you guys started out great. Man, I love your faith and your hope. I've heard about it. It's incredible. I've heard about it clear from Ephesus. But he said, here's what's going on. There's a, there's a weed problem. There is a legalism problem that's growing up in the church, and you better deal with it or it's going to destroy the good things that God is doing. So what is legalism? Let me define it. Legalism is extreme rule-keeping. It's strict adherence to the law. Legalism believes that performance is the way to gain favor with God. Legalism is a human attempt to gain salvation or to prove our spirituality by outwardly conforming to a list of religious do's and don'ts. A whole list, and churches are full of them. If you do this, if you don't do this, you will please God. You will be closer to God. You will gain favor with God. That's what's going on in Colossians, or in Colossae, at the church. There's this whole list of things that false teachers are coming in and they're saying, if you'll do these things 
or if you won't do other things, then you will gain favor with God as a means of salvation. Now, here's the problem with legalism. There's three or four things. Number one, we're all infected by it. We're all infected by it. We tend to think, once we understand what legalism is, we tend to think that it's a problem that you have, but I don't. But we're all legalistic. I remember when we had our kids, you know, when they were all in the home, in our home, not our grandkids, but our kids. Uh, if we'd have known how good grandkids were, we would have skipped parenting and gone straight to grandparenting. But I remember we had four kids in the home, and we had to have rules. How many of you know that? If you're gonna, if you got more than, you know, if you got more than one person in a relationship, in other words, two people or more, you've got to define the relationship. You've got to have rules in order to get along. And so we had we had family rules, and invariably they would get broken. And so if they got broken over and over and over again, we'd have a family meeting. And what we discovered early on is that. Um, you know, Debbie and I can make all the rules and then enforce the rules, and it doesn't work as well once they got to a certain age as to allow them to be a part of the process because we support a world that we help to create. Would you agree with that? And so they help to create the rules. And if, if uh, one of the brothers or sisters had violated a rule, what we would do is we would say, okay, what should the punishment be? We thought, well, at first we thought they're going to let them get, out, get away with any. No, it was like death penalty stuff <laughs> for little things, you know. And then we'd say, okay, so what should the rule, are the rules fair? What should the rules be? And when they were creating rules for their brothers or sisters, man, would they get legalistic. They would go berserk on one another, but when it came to them, they were okay because we tend to think our sins don't smell as bad as your sins do, okay? So we're all infected. We judge others by our standard. We're all infected by legalism. Everybody in here, this message will deal with everybody. Second problem with legalism is it's highly contagious, highly contagious. It's, you get legalism in a church, you get legalism among a group of friends or in a family, and it spreads, it spreads like a bad virus all the way through and destroys as it goes along. Third problem with legalism is that it will wear you out. Grace, the grace of God is freeing. Jesus said, my, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. The grace of God is so lifting and so freeing. But legalism is exhausting. Legalism is keeping score. And when you're keeping score on your own sin and everybody else's sin, it will wear you out. In fact, Paul says a once vibrant faith will become dull and lifeless if you allow legalism into your fellowship. Instead of finding life in Christ, we become stifled by the church. Okay, it'll wear you out. Here's the fourth thing legalism does. It makes it hard to see Jesus. Makes it hard to see Jesus. We see Jesus as a list checker rather than a savior. When we get legalism, when legalism takes over, when the weeds of legalism get in the garden of grace, then it becomes hard to see Jesus. And that's why Paul says to the Colossian church in chapter 2, verses 4 and verse 8, he says this, I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense, I like that, that comes from human thinking 
and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. And so Paul says this is important. In fact, this is the whole reason that he wrote the book of Colossians. He says there are some people, false teachers, that are going to entrap you. In fact, they've already begun into legalism. And the antidote to legalism is instead of allowing it to choke the joy out of your life, Paul says you got to do this. You got to let your roots grow down deeper in God. So let's read together kind of the core verse in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7. In the campuses here at Long Point, let's read it out loud, okay? Here we go. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thanksgiving. He says you got to grow up. You got to grow your roots down deep if you don't you will be carried away by legalism because everybody tends toward it. We all want to keep score. And so then for the next few verses, and that's what I want to study this weekend, next few verses, he says, okay, here are some ways to avoid legalism. How can you keep legalism from stealing your joy? Okay, let me give you three of them. The first one is this. If you're going to keep legalism from stealing your joy, you've got to remember where you stand in Jesus. Before you combat legalism, before you see, you know, the, the counterfeit, you need to know what the real is. You need to stop and reflect on some of the things we talked about last week. What do we have in Christ? When you came to Christ and you committed your life to him, what happened? Okay? What was the transformation process? What, do, what can we expect? Who are we in Christ. And for the next three or four verses, he kind of outlines it. And the first thing he says is this, we are complete in him. We are complete in him. Colossians 2 and verse 10. Let's read this one out loud. So you also, a lot of times when we read out loud, we move our lips. Okay, let's do it. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and every authority. He says, you, are, you, you need to remember this, because if you don't, you'll get caught up in legalism. You are complete in Christ. Spiritually, you are complete in Christ. Now, let me ask you this. When you look at yourself, maybe you look at yourself in the mirror, or, or spiritually, you just kind of look at your reflection who do you see? When you think about who you are, who do you see? What do you see? You know, a lot of times when we look in a mirror at our physical self, what do we see? You know, we see the zit on our nose. We see the fact that our ears aren't the same size. You know, we see the fact that one eye is bigger than the other. All this stuff. Nobody else notices. Well, the zit, maybe we do notice. But <laughs> nobody else notices most of this stuff. But that's what we focus on. When you take a picture, you take a group picture, what makes the group picture good? If you look good, right? And you seldom do. Now, there are some of us, we think we look good all the time. I'm talking for most of us here, okay? You look and you go, man, I don't look good in that. You know, I, it just doesn't get the right angle of me. Spiritually, when you look at yourself, what do you see? Do you see somebody who's imperfect and lacking in many areas? 
Or do you see somebody who's whole and complete in Christ? This is important because when you look at your physical picture, if all you see you know, are the flaws and all this kind of stuff, then you'll be really, really insecure. And when you're really insecure, ultimately that impacts relationships that you have with other people. It impacts relationships with your spouse. It impacts relationship with God. And spiritually, it's the same way. If you see somebody who's imperfect, man, I just, I don't get it here. You know, I'm not there yet. And, you know, last week I, I talked to you about a situation where, um, where, where, where I've beaten myself up. I'm no good at that. And my assistant said, who told you that? Remember that? Who told you that? Well, if you see yourselves as incomplete, then uh, you see your weaknesses, then you'll condemn yourself and you'll feel inferior to others. And, and at that point, you are very susceptible to legalism. Because spiritually, what you'll see is you'll see, man, I'm weak in this area. I'm not good in this area and never get it in this area. And man, this, God must see me as a real goober, you know. And so I'm gonna, these are four things I'm going to do in order to be better in my standing with God. And when you do that, you've moved from grace, which is freeing, to legalism, which is a burden. And so Paul says, you know what? God sees you as complete. He sees us as new creations in Christ. He sees us as partakers of his divine nature. He sees us as more than conquerors over every fault that we have. And he wants us to see ourselves that way, even when positionally we're not there yet. Because when we do, we understand, you know what? We're complete in Christ. Christ's death accomplished everything that you and I need in order to gain favor with God. We are complete in Him. Second thing we need to see and remember where you stand in Christ is that we are alive in Him. Next verse. He says, "For in fact, let's read that next verse together. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with Him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. He said, if you're a believer, then you've been baptized. Now, hopefully that's true. Baptism is the first test of obedience. Jesus said, repent and be baptized. And so he's assuming that believers are baptized. We have baptism service here at Seacoast and in our campuses at least once a month. And here at the Long Point campus, uh, we have some of them in the ocean, but most generally throughout the year, we have them in a baptistry, kind of a, it's kind of a, a, um, a big jacuzzi, a warm jacuzzi just outside the windows uh, to my right. And then we, uh, we play the baptism during response time while everybody's responding to everything else, and we cheer each other on. And, it, and it's a picture, we do it by immersion, because here it says there's a picture of you dying with Christ, the old man dying with Christ. As you go under the water, you are buried, and you rise with new life. You are alive in him. It's new life for today. It's new life forever. And he said, reflect on that. Understand, you're complete in Christ. You're alive in Christ. And then the third thing he says is that we are forgiven in him. Next verse, we are forgiven in him. Let's read that one out loud. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I love it. He canceled the record of the charges against us and he 
Put it away by nailing it to the cross. It's one of the reasons we have crosses during response time is this verse right here. It's a kind of a physical thing where we take our confession of sin to the cross and we nail it to the cross and it's kind of like a physical thing of seeing God taking it away. Now, when I was in school, um, uh, back before computers were in use, okay, it's shortly after Noah came over on the ark, okay, they used to keep the record book of your tests in a, the teachers had a, had a record book, okay? One day, a guy in one of my classes, I don't know who, I'm assuming it was a guy, nobody ever knew what it was, stole the record book, okay? Stole the record book toward the end of the year. Can I tell you, that was a great day for me. <laughs> for some in our class, it was terrible. It's gonna affect my class standing. I did good on all these tests. For me, I'm, I'm not gonna tell you why. It was just a good, good day. So I understand this scripture better than most people do. Because it happened to me with my record one year at school. The record of my wrongs, which <laughs> is what they mostly were, were taken away. And what he says is, the record. there's a record book of all your wrongs. Okay, And he says, in Christ, that record book was taken away and nailed to the cross. You are forgiven. In fact, I don't even believe you have to ask God to forgive you of your sins because he said he already did in Jesus, okay? In Jesus, you don't, you don't have to do all this work and all this stuff. You repent. That's what he says. You, you confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you. And he says, remember this, remember this, that you are forgiven so that you won't try to work your way into some sort, to, you become worthy of being forgiven by God, which is legalism, Okay? Legalism. And then the fourth thing he says is that we are conquerors in him. Next verse. We are conquerors. Colossians 2 and verse 15. Let's read this one out loud too. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now let me explain this this way. How many of you have uh, seen an action movie like, you know, Batman or Iron Man or, you know, any of those, the Superman, whatever? Okay, they all have a gen they all have one scene in them that is a scene from Calvary, and that scene is this: you always have this tension that the bad guys are going to win. Okay, and so you usually have you know Iron Man or Superman or Batman gets captured, you know, or whatever, and the bad guys are just trash talking them. You know, you lose all this kind of stuff, and then there's this. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you've got the cavalry that shows up. Somebody shows up or they do superpowers, you know, and, and they turn the tables on them. And I love the look in the bad guy's eyes. Oh, my goodness. That, that's the cleaned up version. Oh, my goodness, you know. And the whole thing turns. That's exactly what happened at Calvary, he says. The rulers and principalities of this world thought that, that Jesus was defeated. And he says, at Calvary, no, that's when it changed. And publicly, his victory was done over them. And so he says, we, because we are in him, are conquerors in him. So that's kind of the theological background. So let me ask you this. How would you approach life every day if you really, really thought that you were complete in God, that you were alive in him, that the record of your wrongs, all the past ones and future ones and present ones, one day just disappeared and that you are a conqueror in Christ. See, that's the life that God intended for you. 
When Jesus said, I've come that you would have life and have it more abundantly, that's what he's talking about. Life is lived where? Between the ears. Between the ears. You're going to have circumstances. But if between the ears, if in your thinking you believe that you are complete in him, that you're a conqueror in him, that you're forgiven in him, that you have life in him, then you can handle anything. See, now, what if you don't feel complete? What if you don't feel alive? What if you don't feel forgiven? What if you don't feel like a conqueror? What, what if you just don't feel that? I mean, I come to Christ and I really don't feel that. That's what this study is about. That's why we're talking about putting our roots down deep in him. See, what you do is you, we want to take this knowledge from your head to your heart. One of the ways you do that is that you say it until you believe it. You begin to confess, this is who I am in Christ. When thoughts come other ways, you go, no, 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 no. Colossians says this, I am complete in God. I am complete in him. I am more than a conqueror. I am alive in Christ. My sins have been forgiven by him. So you say it until you believe it. So to avoid legalism, first you've got to remember where you stand. Here's the second thing you've got to do. Now we get into dealing with the actual, uh, the actual heresy that's here. You avoid surface judgments. You avoid surface judgments. He says this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. I'll read this and you just kind of follow along. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come and Christ himself is that reality. Circle the word so. So, so, uh, Jessica, when she was still living at home, and my, my daughter, and she was in an internship program for a while in Texas, and I would talk to her on the phone, and I'd see her name on the phone, and I'd answer it, and her conversations would always start the same way. They would start with, so, so, Dad, so, Dad. It was never, hi, Dad, how are you today? Dad, are you having a good day? Dad, this is Jess. No, it was always, so, now, here's what I knew as a father. I needed to come up to speed very, very quickly, remember what the last conversation was about, because so supposes that there was something before. You understand what I'm saying? You don't just start with so. So's in the middle of something. And here, Paul says so. He says, I'm going to tell you to do some things, but in order to understand it, you've got to go back to the previous scriptures. He says, since Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation, that's the so, don't let someone else judge your spiritual life by external standards. Don't let anybody, regardless of what their credentials are, condemn you, he says. And he talks about food laws, holy days, new moons, and Sabbaths. What were those all about? We don't have time to go really deep in them. You can study that yourself. But those are all Old Testament practices. And they were good rules, okay? Good rules. But he says, since Christ has come, they're no longer necessary because they point to Christ. He says they are shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ is the reality. You are free in Christ. These are all good principles. Sabbath is a good principle. I try to practice the Sabbath principle in my life every week. Friday is my Sabbath. 
And uh, th- this week I was looking at my schedule. My schedule was crazy. And my schedule is going to be crazy next week. About two more weeks and we get back to normal. But it's crazy right now. And I clicked it. I was just, I was going, oh, man, I feel tired just looking at it. And I clicked over on Friday. And Friday has nothing. And it's by design. Unless you die on Friday, and I know you really, really well, (laughs) you're not getting an appointment with me. I don't even care about you. I love you six days a week. On Friday, I don't. I love Jesus. I love myself. I love my family. Okay? Do you understand that? It's seven. It's a principle. Now, the principle can be broken if there's a major emergency, and I understand that. I love my job. I love what I do. But I practice the principle of Sabbath. Now, it can, it can get to be legalistic, and I'll show you how that, that goes in just a minute. Holy days are great days. They were feast days and certain days that were set aside to reflect on God and an aspect of who God is. But Paul says they are They were a shadow of what is to come. Christ has come. Don't be in bondage to these. these, uh, When when principles become requirements, the weeds of legalism are just below the surface. And in our lives, we'll get personal now, when good rules, because rules are good, some rules are good, most rules are good, when good rules become legalism, which means a means of earning God's favor other than the finished work of Christ, it leads to bondage rather than freedom. Let me give give you some examples from my own life. Not long after we started Seacoast, I lived in a neighborhood not very far from the church. I still do. Just live in another neighborhood not very far from the church. And there were several of us that bought into that neighborhood when we first moved here. We moved from North Charleston, planted by Northwood Assembly, moved over here, and several of us moved in the same neighborhood. As the neighborhood began to grow, we were the first ones in. Neighborhood began to grow. Um, One day on a Sunday after church, I went home and I mowed my lawn on Sunday afternoon. After I had uh, lunch, it must not have been football season. I mowed my lawn. Have you know mowing your lawn is a good thing? Okay, so I mowed my lawn. Now there was a guy in our neighborhood that went to a different church, and he worked with one of the guys in our church. And he called him up, and he said, I just saw something you need to know about. The guy said, what? He said, I saw your pastor mowing his lawn on the Sabbath. And he was serious as a heart attack. It was a violation of the rules because in his mind, the Sabbath was Sunday. So when you go to church, he's mowing the lawn. He's doing work on Sabbath. Now, that's why I don't mow my lawn anymore. My wife now mows the lawn. (laughs) It's ridiculous. But Christians, and there are lots of them, that believe Sunday is the Sabbath, and for some of you, Sunday is the Sabbath. And you need to determine what it is that makes you rest in God. And what makes you rest in God may not make somebody else rest in God. I'm going to be honest with you. My wife doesn't mow the lawn anymore. We, but for a while she did. And that made her feel rested in the Lord was to mow the lawn. Who are you to judge what make, unless there's a list of rules? And that list of rules, in this particular case, if you're going to follow it really good, 
It's on Saturday, and Paul says if you're going to keep the law, you better keep all of them because if you break one of them, you will be judged by the law. Okay? Now, now I could go on and on on this one. Let me, let me give you another one that's a little bit closer to me because it's something I did. A food law. He says, don't let anybody tell you what to eat or what to drink. Um, I grew up, uh, in, in our home, um, alcohol was prohibited, okay? Alcohol was prohibited. It was a good law because both of my grandfathers were alcoholics. My mother had seen the devastation of an abusive alcoholic father. My father, had, who never came to Christ, my father had seen what happened with his father before he came to Christ. And so it was a good rule. My family tended toward alcoholism. My mother, especially, and my father did not want us to be tempted by that, which you are anyway when you're, you know, a teenager or whatever, you're tempted by everything. But it was a good rule. In fact, it was a rule that I raised my kids with. Now, here was a problem. The good rule became legislated sin. To drink as a Christian was wrong. And so when a good rule becomes a means of gaining favor with God, it is called what? Legalism. And so we became legalistic. Um, not taking into account the full scriptures, Paul recommending Timothy to take some wine uh, with his stomach. Now, those who are Tempted to drink too much, we'll use that as a scripture for, you know, to justify or whatever, but it is a scripture. Uh, Jesus turned water into wine. We thought it was grape juice, okay? And a lot of people do. Uh, but it, they said it, that, that uh, at the wedding, when he turned it into wine, they said, the, why'd you save the good wine till last? This is better than the first wine. I, I don't think it was grape juice. In fact, people wrote books about all of that kind of thing. Psalm 104 verse 14 says, God makes grass to grow for the cattle, plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the human heart, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their heart. Now, I'm not making a case that everybody ought to drink. Not at all. I'm just saying we ignored all of that, and we'd make Scripture say something that it didn't. We were honest, but we were legalistic, and I owned that. I carried that into ministry here at Seacoast. I judged people's depths of faith. I could give you all kinds of funny stories that are funny to me, but probably not to anybody else, about how I judge people's depths of faith. In fact, I made, I preached sermons. Listen, there are some sermons that I preached here that I wished I never preached. How many of you guys have ever said something you wish you never said? All of mine are recorded. Okay? I made rules for leaders. I made rules for pastors. Until I was sitting down reading a book of Colossians and the book of Romans and the book of Galatians just a few years ago. The Lord spoke to my heart and said, you're legalistic. You are using something as a mean. You're calling a good rule for you growing up. You're calling it uh, a sin and you're, you're, you're legalistic in, in, uh, in, in that whole deal. You follow what I'm saying? Um, let me give you another one. Every once in a while, somebody here at Seacoast will say to me, obviously because they look around maybe at the band on stage or people in, you know, they work with or their own kids, and they'll say, when are you going to preach a sermon about tattoos? Okay? I know there's a scripture somewhere. 
It talks about not, not writing on yourself, not drawing on you. And you know what? There is. There is. There's one in the Old Testament. But if, um, if you, uh, it, it, we'd pull it up, we're going to have to pull up some other scriptures in the Old Testament if we're going to do that. There are some that are, that are uh, customary laws. There are some that are laws for that time, and there are some that are, that are universal. So, so here, here's the deal. Whether a person wears a tattoo or doesn't wear a tattoo says nothing about their relationship with God and their spirituality. It just doesn't, and I'm not going to make it say one thing when it, when it doesn't. Now, that being said, let me, let me say a couple of things. If you are living in your parents' home, and the rule of your parents' home is no tattoos, that's a good rule. And if you get a tattoo, you are totally out of order. You're totally out of order because you're not submitting to the rules of the house. If, uh, if, you're, if you apply for a job and the employer that you apply for sees, you know, the sleeve that you've got of tattoos or something coming out of your neck and they've got a, a, a view that says we don't like tattoos here, don't cop an attitude. Don't get your undies in a bunch. They have a right to make the rule however they want to make the rule. But it has no, nothing to do with your standing in Christ. I would say a couple of things about that is th this, that you need, if you're going to get a tattoo in certain areas, you need to allow for the effects of aging. Because <laughs> someday you're probably going to gain a couple of pounds. And some things may sag from time to time. And that... that Tat on your backside that looked cute at 16 may look like a road map of Texas at 60. So you need to understand that. You need to understand that. Just think it through. So it's wrong for us to con condemn others because of our convictions. If you're going to root out legalism, remember what you have in Christ. Refuse to judge by externals. Let me give you another one. i got to get, get this one real quick. Reject false authority. Reject false authority. I call this just say no to wackos, okay? All right, here we go. Look at verse 18. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying that they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they're not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. He says, don't listen. Don't let anybody condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial. Why is pious self-denial so attractive? Why do we listen to it? Why do we get into legalism? Because pious self-denial keeps score, and we love keeping score. I remember, again, when the kids were in the home, and we had them in rec league basketball, and at, at a certain age, they don't have scoreboards. Can I tell you, every father in the gym knew what the score was, because we like keeping scores. Let's say that righteousness, right standing with God, is, uh, can be kept on a scorecard like golf. We went over to Snee Farm Country Club right next door. We got a golf card. I, I just want to illustrate something for you. In golf, anybody know how to golf? Okay, know how they score? In golf, um, every hole has an optimum score that most people should get this score. It might be a three, might be a four, might be a five, depending on the length and the difficulty of the hole, but it's called par. 
par, because everybody should get that, par. Now, if you shoot one above par, that's a bogey. That's not good to score high in golf. Two above par is a double bogey. One below par is good. That's a birdie. Uh, two below par is an eagle. Uh, hole in one is just phenomenal, okay? So let's say righteousness is like that. You get points for good things you do and bad things that you avoid. Par would be doing things like this. Being nice to your neighbor, give you a par. Return the grocery cart, give you a par. Replacing the toilet paper when you use the last piece, that's a par. Recycling, that's a good thing, that's a par. You get a bogey, that's one over par. That's not good for swearing, for not tipping, for cutting in line. You get a double bogey if the swearing was an F-bomb, okay? <laughs> or telling a big-time lie or inviting me to play Candy Crush or Diamond Dash on Facebook. Okay? That's a double bogey. Or Texas Hold'em or anything else. Don't do it, okay? A birdie, those are good things, birdie. You get a birdie for tithing, for volunteering, for going on a mission trip. You get an eagle for watching the finale of The Bachelorette with your wife or girlfriend, okay? Disgusting show. You get a hole in one for selling everything and giving to the poor, see? Now, that's not how it works. But mentally, we keep score like that. We really do. We have a mental scorecard. The problem is that is a form of righteousness apart from Christ. Our righteousness is in Christ. Any other form of righteousness is called self-righteousness. And if you look that up, that's never good. When you see self-righteousness in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, it is never a good thing. But that's what that is. That's trying to be righteous by yourself with some system of scoring. And what happens is either you feel guilty all the time because you never add up, or you look down on others who aren't scoring as well as yours. And Paul says, don't do it and don't let others keep score for you. Paul says, sometimes religious le leaders go wacky. I've seen it over the years. Almost every religious leader starts out sincere and then they get disconnected. Paul says, they're not connected to Christ. In the scripture we read, they're not connected to Christ. Um, when you get isolated, you start spending too much time in your own head. You could end up like Tom Hanks in Castaway, who started having a friendship with a volleyball named Wilson. And I know a lot of religious leaders that are like that. You know, it's, well, brother, I'm just, it's just me and the Lord, you know. We're just, just spending time with the Lord. And then they begin seeing things and hearing things from angels, Paul said. They become too proud to listen to anybody. They get wacko. And then they start condemning other people who don't live like they do. And they write books. And we love the books because we love getting beat up. Because somehow we think we're not scoring like we should. And legalism goes everywhere. I love Rick Warren. Rick Warren said, uh, and he's not a wacko leader, he tweeted this week, Redwoods become the largest trees by growing in groves, interlocking roots for support. See, that's, you, you don't go wacko when you're together with other people. But it's not just leaders. Listen to me. If a believer led by the Holy Spirit decides to reject all things material, give all their possessions away, and live by faith, or 
if a believer led by the Holy Spirit decides to homeschool their kids, or if a believer led by the Spirit decides to put their kids in Christian school, or if a believer led by the Spirit decides to adopt children from a foreign country, or if a believer led by the Spirit decides to abstain from alcohol for the rest of their life, or if a believer led by the Spirit decides to avoid all R-rated movies or media of any kind or social media or anything else, or if a believer led by the Spirit decides to move their family into an impoverished area of the city to be a light in the darkness, any one of those things happen. Here's how we should respond. We should celebrate their decision. We should go, yay, God, you've heard from God. Praise God for his direction in their life. We ought to celebrate that. We ought to put the pom-poms on. You say, well, how could a holy God lead so many people in such different directions? Because he knows what each person needs. He knew that our family needed to break an alcohol stronghold. So that was a good rule for our family. Okay? But if any one of these things becomes the measurement for holiness or the standard for what other people are judged, there's some wacko going on. Someone is smoking some legalism weed and needs to be called on it because it can go viral in a hurry. We can think everybody ought to live this way. Okay? And here's what Paul says last scripture You have died with Christ, and he has set you free. From the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severely bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Avoid legalism like the plague. When you see it growing, pluck it out. It's a weed that will destroy you, your family, your small group, your church. So let me ask you as we conclude, how's your walk with God? How's your walk with God? Do you focus on you or do you focus on Jesus and what he's done? Do you focus on what you should do, you think, or on his completed work on the cross? That when he said, it is finished, he did everything necessary for you to be totally right with God. Are you a list keeper or are you a grace giver when it comes to other people? If you find yourself being critical and walking alone, I want to challenge you to join a small group. Don't go wacko. Get around other people who can kind of balance where you are. Does your walk with God free you up or does it keep you bound? See? What, what, what old laws are still on your books today? Things that you're using to measure your relationship with God. Things that you're judging others by. I want to challenge you to take them to the cross this weekend. You say, well, does that mean I can do everything I want? No. But you can do everything Christ wants you to do. It's called the law of love, and we'll talk about that next week. But let's walk in freedom. Let's walk in freedom. I want to pray for you. Father, I thank you. For this wonderful group of people, I feel about Seacoast like Paul felt about Colossians. It is a joy to pray for. I love their faith and their hope and their love. And now, God, I pray that you would help us 
to root out legalism, to avoid it, God, to be a people who walk in love and who walk in grace. Help us to extend grace to one another. Lord, help us to extend grace to ourselves as we see ourselves in you. God, I pray that you would expose areas in our lives where we've taken good rules and we've made them law and we've made them ways of of achieving favor with you. Root them out of our systems. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.